And welcome, planners, to the 15th episode of the very unofficial AICP podcast. I am Jonathan Miller, and thank you all so much for joining. And this is it. Uh, exam time is upon us, and now is the time where you hit the topics you are the most unfamiliar with and basically mentally prepare. I can't emphasize that enough. Know what you should do the day before the exam? Unplug from the material. Watch a movie, go out to dinner, go for a hike, whatever. Just spend some time not reading or working on planning stuff. If you try to jam in too much, I promise you, you will burn out and hit that mental wall, so avoid it. You got this. That said, I'm going to do my part for you and make this the last episode of this round of the AICP exam. Don't worry though, we will pick it back up in December for the new round of applications. So we'll end this round with a topic more specific to planning, or at least the kind of stuff that got most of us into planning. Uh, At the end of the 1800s, we started to see planning theories, or methods, if you will, of planning emerge. In 1880, we got the start of the model company town, Pullman, Illinois. In 1893, we got the Columbian Exposition, or Chicago World's Fair, as most people know it. And as I'm sure you all know, that started the City Beautiful movement. And at the end of the century, we get Ebenezer Howard's book, Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, a.k.a. Garden Cities of Tomorrow. And that helped spark the Garden Cities movement, obviously. But today, let's start with Pullman. So, Pullman, Illinois, aptly named for the man and the company that provided its origins. George Pullman moved to Chicago in his early days and made a boatload of money raising Chicago buildings in order to construct a sewer system underneath, and it was that money that he used to start his passenger car business. In 1864, George Pullman constructed his first luxury sleeping car called the Pioneer. You see, before Pullman's luxury sleeping cars, the railroad passenger cars were pretty cramped, which super wealthy people hate. So obviously, there was a definite market for Pullman's product. Uh, Fun fact, the Pioneer actually carried Lincoln's body from D.C. to Springfield, and the notoriety of that kind of helped his luxury sleeping car concept take off. And in 1867, the Pullman Palace Car Company was founded. The business model slightly changed, though. Over time, he developed other high-end luxury train cars, and these train cars were too expensive for the railroads to buy. So he actually monetized the whole business model by leasing them out instead and providing the staff for them full service. And business was, well, booming. So much so that he decided to construct a full-fledged town to house his workers and provide all of the necessities. Why? Well, to prevent disgruntled employees and attract more skilled employees, both of which in the service of increasing productivity. So in 1879, Pullman bought up 4,000 acres of land south of Chicago, and in 1880, construction began. And after four short years, by 1884, Pullman, Illinois was complete. 
She had 1,000 homes, each with gas, water, sewer, I mean, really more amenities than any of the living spaces in cities had. Front and backyards, daily trash removal. She had parks, open spaces, a library, shops, and of course, the factories where the employees worked. And the architect who was hired, uh, Solon Beeman, designed all of this in a Queen Anne style with arches for accents on non-residential buildings, and everything was constructed in brick. Sounds like a dream, right? Well, it came with a cost, too. You see, George Pullman managed everything and charged for it. Uh, None of the housing within Pullman was able to be purchased. They were all for rent only and set for a 6% return, of course. And that is aside from the utter lack of privacy. Renters could be evicted at any time for any reason, and they were subject to random inspections. In fact, saloons were also banned, town meetings were banned, and Pullman himself even decided which books the library had in circulation. There are monotony and surveillance on the inside. Pullman may appear all glitter and glow, all gladness and glory to the casual visitor, but there is a deep, dark background of discontent, which it would be idle to deny. At least that's how the Chicago Tribune described it in 1888. While the town was beautiful from the outside, the inside was very, you know, Orson Welles, 1894. At least that's the impression I get, but there was also a perfect storm of events waiting to bring forth some change. In 1893, as the Chicago World's Fair was ramping up, the U.S. was on the verge of a financial recession, and that economic struggle showed in the rail industry, which had, to a degree, overextended itself. The financial struggles resulted in decreased orders with the Pullman Company, and subsequently, That meant layoffs and reduced hours. Unfortunately though, Pullman didn't reflect that in his rents, and since rent was deducted straight from the paychecks, people weren't left with enough money to even eat. Now, simultaneously, there was the uh, existing malcontent with how the town was run, and then, also in 1893, at the Chicago World's Fair, the American Railway Union, or ARU, was formed. This allowed the Pullman workers to strike in 1894, and though the ARU weren't initially on board, they came around and organized an industry-wide boycott of Pullman cars by all railway union workers. Now, I'll keep this part short, but it's super interesting and you should definitely read up on it, but the strike and boycott got wildly out of hand, really quickly. Because the federal government got involved trying to impose an injunction on the boycott as a threat to interstate commerce, U.S. Marshals and Army troops were deployed to the Chicago rail yards where fights broke out with workers, leaving dozens dead. Ultimately, the strike was disbanded and Pullman continued his authoritarian rule of Pullman, Illinois until he died in 1896. By 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court ordered the Pullman Company to sell all non-industrial land with residents given the first right of refusal. After a period of decline, Pullman was designated a National Historic Landmark District in 1970. So let's go back though to 1893 and not too far away from the growing tensions in Pullman to Chicago. 
Now, I know we're all planners here, so this shouldn't be too new to anyone, but the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, or Chicago World's Fair as it's better known, was meant to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus, and it was also the brainchild of a guy you all know, Daniel Hudson Burnham. Now, Burnham was an architect in Chicago, and actually helped shape the first buildings that we call skyscrapers, but anyways. Burnham and his partner at the time, John Root, were in discussions to design the World's Columbian Exposition when, unfortunately, Root passed away. So, Burnham took on the lead role of designer and head of construction. And what did he do for assistance with designing all of the buildings? Well, he reached out to a dream team of architects, Richard Hunt, George Post, Louis Sullivan, among others, and of course, none other than our landscape architect friend, Frederick Law Olmsted. This group of remarkable individuals had met about what style to design the fair in. Uh, originally, it was intended to be more modern, but they actually settled on a classical revival style uh, with Romanesque and Renaissance buildings that highlighted the Beaux-Arts style of architecture. These buildings featured symmetry, columns, and copious uh, decorative exteriors. Uh, they had statues, uh, raised first stories, in probably one of the first physical planning efforts regarding building placement. These extraordinary buildings were organized around gardens, lakes, a mile-long central boulevard. Uh, oh, and I want to note this uh, too as a fun little story. So if you weren't aware, which you probably are, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair is also known as the White City. I mean, people were just in love with it. All of the buildings with their revival architecture were white and they just glowed under this newly invented electric uh, incandescent light. But the white of the buildings was actually a relatively haphazard result. Uh, you see, the buildings weren't actually planned to be all white from the get-go, but time and money pressures were mounting. So in the lead up to opening day, Burnham made the decision that all of the buildings would get a simple white stucco treatment and there just wasn't the time and money to put into finishing them off the way they were planned, and that seemed to work out pretty well. Anyways, this combination of architecture and orientation of buildings captured the visitors' hearts. So much so that after the fair, Burnham made a pretty decent living creating plans for other cities, like the 1903 group plan in Chicago, uh, he helped on the 1901 McMillan plan in DC, and a 1905 plan for San Francisco, just to name a few. And these all fell into an urban planning philosophy that today we call City Beautiful. So, what is the City Beautiful movement? Uh, in short, the City Beautiful movement was the idea that designing a city with aesthetics in mind, you could instill civic pride and morals into the community. You see, at the time, and remember, this was 1893, we were in the heyday of the dumbbell tenement and deplorable living conditions. 
So seeing this beautiful, magical white city instilled a lot of civic pride for Chicagoans and left a lot of visitors wishing that their cities did the same. It made the citizenry prideful of their cities. It made them want to do better, uh, be better, and hence the theory that design and city planning was tied inseparably to civic pride and engagement. And how did City Beautiful achieve this? Through ornate details in Greek revivalist architecture, grand boulevards and pedestrian plazas, basically large civic open spaces. It didn't have to be large natural parks either. Uh, if you were to Google Cleveland Public Square, you will see what I mean. It's just a large square in the center of downtown as part of the Cleveland Group plan. Uh, this was meant to be the center of the most important buildings. That's the grandiosity of the City Beautiful movement. Not everyone was a fan, though, uh, including the heralded Jane Jacobs, but we will cover City Beautiful a little more in-depth, uh, including its opponents uh, another time. On the other hand, though, there was another movement gaining some traction at the same time, the Garden City movement. The Garden City movement's beginning is largely credited to, and follow me here, a 1902 book called The Garden Cities of Tomorrow, which was written by a guy named Ebenezer Howard, and that book is actually just the revised and re-released version of his book from 1898, Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform. So who was this Ebenezer Howard? Was he an architect, a landscape architect? Uh, no, none of the above actually. He was the son of a baker turned stenographer, uh, turned attempted farmer, turned back to stenographer. Uh, his last stenographer stint though was transcribing the British parliament. And so he ended up spending a lot of time reading about social reform including our friend Henry George's Progress and Poverty, if you remember. Ultimately, these experiences and readings uh, informed his view of what a utopian community could be, and to him, that meant a better blend of cities and country. So first, let me get this out of the way. If you Google around for Ebenezer Howard, you'll see a lot of references to Ebenezer Howard, the urban planner but it's more urban planning theorist Ebenezer Howard. And his theory was garden cities. Uh, anyways, ultimately the book Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, and subsequently the revised version, Garden Cities of Tomorrow, painted a picture of a utopian town where the benefits of both cities and country were blended together. These garden cities had the opportunities, high wages, and entertainment activities of cities, but also had the fresh air, cheap rent, and picturesque nature of the country. These concepts were brought out in his famous three magnets diagram, with each magnet representing the town, the country, and the town country. In a nutshell, the magnets of town and country highlight the pros and cons of each, and the list under the town country magnet is just a compilation of the pros of both. 
Uh, beauty of nature, social opportunity, low rents, fields, parks, high wages, plenty to do, etc., etc., etc. The more famous diagram, though, is the one that looks like it would be painted on the floor of some satanic ritual. Uh, I really mean no offense by that, but I mean, it, it kind of does. The, the entire diagram is circular and divided into six equal wedges of sorts. It has the central city in the middle uh, and identifies that to have a population of 58,000. Uh, outside of that are six open areas where social services and open spaces are like the home for inebriates and the insane asylum. Uh, there's two areas for reservoirs, uh, one for large farms, and I think one is identified as a forest. Uh, those are enclosed by the intermunicipal railway which connects the peripherals of six smaller town clusters, and each of those has a population of 9,000 people. And the centers of these clusters are connected by a intermunicipal canal. Uh, in between all of these are open spaces, farms, forests, uh, waterfalls, quarries, and colleges. Now, I know you've seen the picture of what I'm talking about. It should be noted that Ebenezer Howard actually never intended the Garden Cities to be literal circles. This diagram was really just intended to be an example. But Garden City advocates apparently liked the symmetry, I guess, because the circle concept followed it. Uh, the first Garden City, Letchworth, uh, was actually developed shortly after the re-release of the book. But again, we will cover Garden Cities more specifically uh, later on in a future episode. So, what did we learn today? Well, we talked about the failed experiment of the first company town, Pullman, Illinois. Although, uh, over time, to be fair, uh, she did rebound. The failings were more a result of the way that it was governed at the time. The physical part was actually really good, like uh, award-winning good. It actually won uh, some awards for, for planning later on. Um, we also covered, briefly, uh, Daniel Burnham, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, and the birth of the City Beautiful movement. Uh, side note, next time you're looking for a good book to read, uh, if you haven't already, check out Devil in the White City. Uh, it's about the infamous serial killer at the time, but also tells the story of Daniel Burnham and the development of the 1893 World's Fair. It really is an amazing story. Then we covered Ebenezer Howard and his Garden City concept that he wrote about in his one and only book in 1898, Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Reform. Uh, or better known under its 1902 re-release name, uh, Garden Cities of Tomorrow. And there you have it. Uh, that is the brief story of Pullman, Illinois, the Chicago World's Fair, City Beautiful, and the start of Garden Cities. Uh, if you want to know more about it, uh, which as planners, you absolutely should, Links to all of the information used in putting this episode together is in the show notes. Uh, for those of you playing along at home, our question last week was, what was the first national park and when was it established? This was a little trickier, but only because it wasn't even the topic of the episode. 
regardless though, that would be Yellowstone National Park, and that was established in 1872. If you want to play along this week, our question is going to be, what was the first Garden City? Now, for the answer to that, you'll have to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Since the exam window just started, uh, I'm going to be taking a short break to let you all focus on things you need to, including taking a needed breather. If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and email me or send me a message through the website, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Also, go on and click subscribe for this podcast on whatever platform you're using or sign up on the show's website so you can be a better planner moving forward. You're done with your study regimens and off towards certification, but learning is a lifelong process. And like Albert Einstein said, once you stop learning, you start dying. So stick with us and keep on learning. If you know any planners who are ramping up for the next round of the exam or know someone who finds this type of stuff interesting, share it out. Leave a rating. You've got nothing to lose. Finally, and most importantly, good luck, everyone. You got this. And in all seriousness, send me a message to let me know how you did, what tripped you up, what was easy. Uh, And I would love to give some shout outs to all the newly minted AIC peers when we pick back up. Thanks again for letting me be a part of your journey to certification. It has honestly been way too much fun. Until next time.